Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Emily Splickle, podiatrist and human movement specialist, is the mind behind Nabosco. With a spirit to challenge conformity, Dr. Splickle has taken her conventional medical degree and combined it with years of experience, expertise in human movement, and sensory science to found Nabosco. Dr. Splickle believes that our experience in this world is built around sensory stimulation and highly values our ability to process, perceive, and integrate this information effectively. Since 2012, Dr. Splickle has been traveling the world to share her unique approach on human movement, foot function, and barefoot science. Having taught in 35 countries and to 20,000 professionals, Dr. Splickle has quickly become a global leader in barefoot training and rehabilitation. She is also the author of the highly rated book, Barefoot Strong, Unlock the Secrets to Movement Longevity. From optimizing a child's sensory stimulation during their peak window of neuroplasticity to rehabbing an athlete who just suffered a foot injury, Dr. Splickle is ready to impact the world and share her passion for the belief that life is sensory. Dr. Emily Splickle, it's such an honor to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure. It's been really awesome to deep dive into your work and talk about the foot. I want to start with um, your content online, which is absolutely beautiful. The cover of your book is absolutely beautiful. And to get into your website, there's a quote that I want to read. The human foot is a masterpiece of engineering and a work of art. And that was by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, I certainly agree with that. Can you maybe elaborate on that quote and why you decided to have that be the very first thing that we see when we go to your content? Yeah, and I agree with it as well. I think that the human foot is, it's beautiful, it's fascinating, it's complex, it's very integrated. And the way that I like to think about it is both from a mechanical perspective, but also a sensory perspective. And when we think of the number of bones that are in the foot, the small bones, how they're able to hold our entire body weight and our posture really interesting how that structure has evolved to allow us to ambulate the way that we do mechanically. On the other side, from a sensory perspective, there are thousands of nerves, especially in the skin in the bottom of the foot, that is constantly reading the environment and the surface as we walk. And that information is used to read, correct, and adjust every step that we take. So it is, from both perspectives, very much integrated, very fascinating. When I teach courses, I tell people, if you just leave this two-day training with me with a appreciation for the complexity of the human foot, then I have succeeded. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely amazing. We just did an episode with Tucker Goodrich, who's an expert on vegetable oils. The episode wasn't even about barefoot training or anything, but I just like to talk about it with everybody who is embracing it. It makes it into so many of our episodes. And I told him like, what would happen if we, you know, always use gloves on our hands to do everything. And that's how we lived our lives. And he said, forget gloves, try mittens. What happens if we wore mittens and you couldn't do anything? It just occurs to me as you're saying, like the, the, our feet is how we sense the world. Why, why do we wrap them up and shove them in shoes? These foot coffins that are shaped horribly. What have we done to ourselves? I know, I know. And really people don't know what they don't know. Meaning that if you are just accustomed to being in shoes for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it's not until you start to get out of them and experience the power of barefoot science or sensory stimulation that you are like, 
oh, that's how I should be moving. It's really interesting to see how people respond to that experience of feeling their feet again. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that kind of evolution and learning. That's something you certainly experienced. I have heard recently that you were, you know, wearing lots of high heels in school because it was sex in the city time in New York. And like, it's really exciting. Tell us a little bit about your evolution into this world and how you got interested in this and how you've changed your mind about things over time. Yeah, so I did have a momentary transition through high heels, but before people hang up or don't want to listen, <laughs> just hold tight, hold tight. Uh, but my my background in feet, barefoot science, and movement really started when I was a competitive gymnast. So from the age of six to nineteen, I was a competitive gymnast, barefoot sport. Really important to tensioning and how I now teach foot to core integration. Granted, I did not know that that's what it was called or what I was doing at that time. And then got into fitness. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years, had this transient period when I was going to podiatry school. So that's actually quite ironic that I wore high heels to podiatry school every day. This was in Manhattan during the height of sex in the city. And then once I graduated, I started to get into this barefoot running boom that happened at that same time. So Vibram, Nike Freeze, all of those were happening right at that period of 2008, 9, 10 was like the height of it. And I saw this opportunity of me using my fitness movement background with my new podiatry degree to combine and build content and education around this, having an appreciation for both aspects. And then that's where my brand really shifted from this stiletto posture. It was still a barefoot workout at the end of the day, but you happen to put your shoes on at the end, but to evolve into really what is the message that I was trying to deliver in my stiletto recovery catwalk confidence era was barefoot, foot-to-core, posture, fascial tension. So I cleaned it up and really finessed it to target a larger audience. I didn't want to limit people based off of who is or not going to wear high heels. So it was more, okay, everyone, every age, regardless of your movement goal, will benefit from connecting to your feet, foot health, sensory stimulation. So that evolved. And then eventually that led to Nabosa, my products company, which is products to assist in that connection to the sensory side of the feet. Yeah, that's so interesting. We've done a few episodes on the structure of the foot and the importance of that connection in the myofascial tissue. Um, downstairs in our Pilates studio and private training area, we we don't have hardly anything on the walls, but one thing we absolutely have on the walls is seven different posters with all the anatomy trains. And people are stunned when they see how the palate of the mouth is actually connected all the way through the foot. Can we maybe start there and talk about some of those connections and then why fascia is so important? I love the deep front line, which is what you're in reference. Uh, and the reason why I like the deep front line is not just because it's connected to the feet, but a big part of how I look at human movement is timing and coordination of stabilization. To me, this is the biggest aspect of fitness programming, movement performance is not just, oh, is my core engaging? Is my core strong? Do I have a six pack, right? So it's kind of this isolated aspect of a muscle group that isn't really applied back into function. And to apply something back to function, the most important thing is time. 
You've got to be thinking about the timing, the timing, the timing. How quickly are you sensing it? How long is the muscle contracting? How integrated is the muscle contracting? So really the deep front line is your first line of stabilization when we move. It is like your internal skeleton or your soft tissue skeleton that allows all the other muscles to contract against or off of. So this sequencing of stabilization, you need to have the deeper stabilizers first, then you get all of these palpable global muscles contracting off of that. And it ties into the deep intrinsics of the foot. So it runs from the tips of the toes up your lower leg into your adductors, pelvic floor diaphragm, and you would set up the neck to your soft palate. But it's also pulling in the intrinsic foot, deep foot muscles, and connecting them to the deep core or pelvic floor muscles. To me, that is such a critical connection that is not taught. I know in Pilates, you obviously appreciate this, but it's not taught in athletics. I never learned that as a gymnast. I would think that would be one of the most foundational concepts to teach a gymnast or any athlete for that matter, that this is how you harness power is through stability. Yeah, that concept that stability creates mobility. And I think a lot of people kind of throw those two terms around without really truly understanding each one of those. And I certainly was not taught that in athletics or really in a lot of the personal training certifications that I've ever done. Um, so it's interesting to deep dive into that now. What what are some of the issues you see with that line when people lose the awareness of having their feet connected to the ground? Let's say they've been in, you know, a pair of shoes for a really long time. And again, it's it's one of your standard, you know, Payless shoe store kind of shoes. And you know, some of the things those include, what, what, what kind of issues do you see with that? Yeah. So when it comes to the deep front line or your foot to core, so I, I referenced your deep front line as your foot to core stabilization line or your toe to tongue stabilization way. So you're, you can kind of access it both ways, but you need to have strong feet that are connected to a strong core. So if someone is having really strong core and they're doing a lot of center-based work for, let's say, strong glutes and you know, hip extenders. Great. Love it. But because of the fascial and integrated design of the human body, the feet have to be connected to the core, which means to fully have a strong core, you have to train the foot as well. And then similarly to strengthen the foot in isolation is not going to lead to a strong core either. They got to be connected. So certain things that I will see is non-responding plantar fasciitis or fasciosis. I know that the foot and core are not connected. Um, SI joint pain, uh, tailbone pain or coccydinia, see that a lot. Hip labral issues, adductor strain, groin pain, um, ankle sprains, so many things that you can see both in the foot and the pelvis. And oftentimes it is because they are not interconnected and they're not stabilizing together as a team they're kind of like, I'm over here strong, I'm over here strong, but we're not working together. And that will present as various pathologies or overuse injuries. Interesting. Do you ever notice a lot of problems in the knees as well? 100%. Yeah, your your knee gets the shitty end of the deal. <laughs> if your hip's not strong, your foot's not strong, your, your knee is going to experience the stress. I think a lot of people, especially in the fitness industry, are taught to think about the knee from a 
glute proximal stabilization perspective. And because of the complexity of the foot, they might not understand all of the subtle imbalances that can present in the foot as well that could be causing the delayed glute activation that is causing the knee stress. So we want to get to the root of the issue, the actual root of the issue, not just a contributor, but we might not be seeing the whole picture still. Interesting. Yeah, that's very well explained. I appreciate that a lot. Um, what are some of the features on modern footwear that are the worst? Is it is it that the cushion? Is it that they're usually like pitching us forward? Like what are what are some of the things that you look at in a shoe and just absolutely cringe? My biggest thing is cushion because I'm very sensory based. So as soon as there's a high stack with lots of cushion, hoka. <laughs> As an example, uh, to me, that is just sensorially disconnecting that individual from the ground, their nervous system, the body, their movement. That I'm like, if you're going to wear a hoka, okay, I get it, super trendy. In certain conditions, I'll actually recommend it, like a Helix Limitus, Rigidus, Neuromas, Plantar Plate issues. Sometimes I'll recommend hoka. I, I do at some point, um, but I will say I need you to at least put a Naboso sensory insole in the shoe. So we are at least offsetting the disconnect that that cushion is creating. That's my, my big one. Second one, of course, drop. Um, I feel like a lot of shoes nowadays do not have the same drop that they did traditionally. They're shifting more towards this transitional drop, which sits around eight to 10 millimeters of a heel toe drop or a declination. Um, there are certain foot types that do benefit from a drop. So a slight over pronation or a navicular drop, medial pronation, you can pull them into a little bit of a drop and it'll stabilize the foot. So I don't get as... Um, excited or I don't freak out over a heel toe drop as much as I do the cushion. One other one that I will mention though, is the rigidity of either the shank and the counter that are in it. So if you have a shoe and I don't have a shoe with me, and so I apologize. I'll just take this or that. And you can't twist it. So I need you to be able to like wring the shoe out like a rag or twist it. That is based off of the midsole that is running through the shoe and to have more freedom of movement in a torsion perspective, to me, optimizes natural foot function. So I would say those would be my two. And then third, I'll give the heel toe drop at the third. Yeah, no, that's great. That's very well explained. Um, recently, I ran into one of my neighbors who was walking around the lake and he was wearing a pair of hokas. And I mean, they do, they look like moon boots. And he, you know, walked up to me and he pointed at my earth runners, which are really minimal and and said like, how do you walk in those? And I kind of looked at him like, how do you walk in those, man? Like so different. <laughs> and, and he made the comment that like it, if he if he wears anything else, he he is in a lot of pain and he can't do it. And he was going on a hike later that day, and so he's wearing these in preparation so that he can do these other activities. And you know, I I, I want him to be in a minimal foot and I, I footwear, and I want him to start to experience you know the benefit of being barefoot and get the foot stronger. But for somebody who says something like that to you, you must get that all the time. How would you respond? I do get that a lot. And I would want to explore a little bit more at the inherent awareness of the foot and the intrinsic strength. And this goes back to the foot to core, because if your feet are not connected to your pelvic floor, your pelvic floor is one of the most important anti-gravity muscles. People who are passive in their feet and feel like heaviness, 
diffuse foot fatigue, diffuse foot pain, extra weight and pressure on their foot. Oftentimes they're not connected to their pelvic floor and this anti-gravity lift or the tension of their myofascial web and that tone lift of kind of creating space in a sense, that's what your fascia does, can result in this heaviness in the foot that then they think they need the cushion and the padding underneath it. So I would start with just reconnect to the sensory aspect, right? Um, using, you know, can you do barefoot stimulation, being on the Naboso mat, release the bottom of your feet, use vibration platforms, just walk on the grass for 15 minutes, something to start to introduce sensory information to the foot. Then I would go through really this foundational short foot, foot to core, and make sure that the intrinsics are awake and that they're connected to the feet. Majority of people will be able to then transition out of something like that outside of or with the exception of things that are exceeding physiology. So let's say this gentleman, your neighbor, uh, happened to work on concrete floors for 10-hour shifts. I get it. That's very unnatural to the human body. I would probably want to be in hokas too if I was standing on concrete for that long. So we need to balance the appropriateness of the demands that you're putting on the foot while still focusing on the natural strength and recovery of the foot so that we do not become really succumbed or requiring this footwear to do all activities. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think of like a, a really long ultra marathon or something. It's like, yeah, it's amazing that you can do that. And of course, as humans, we can run very long distances. But where do you draw the line of like, what what should we really be able to do? And what should we not be able to do? And that's where I have a tough time, you know, wondering like some of these really high intensity exercises or environments like you're describing, are they're causing a lot of harm, you know? Mm-hmm. Risk versus benefit. Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. So for somebody for somebody like this who is going to have to go through some type of recovery process, how long does that process typically take for most people? I know that's going to be highly variable. And you've already kind of alluded to this, but let's just reiterate, what are some of the steps that somebody needs to do to get started? So I, I actually put a lot of patients through a functional foot program and either it's them transitioning out of custom orthotics and supportive shoes into a more minimal environment, or it is them coming off of an injury or foot surgery. And I'm trying to get them back to their return to function. I normally do this over three different phases. So phase one, phase two, phase three, the first phase is just reconnecting to the sensory foundational stabilization aspect of the foot. So it could be release the feet every day, use the Naboso insoles, maybe a little forward lean to get your foot reflexively contracting or your digits reflexively contracting. And I have them do that every single day. There's like a little 15 minute series that I give a patient every single day, consistent, consistent for four to six weeks. And why I do Every single day, small doses, consistently four to six weeks is because I'm trying to build behavior change, habits, and a lifestyle. So I need to, layer one has to be the sensory stability part that. Once they have that, then I can start to add on more integrated strength. So it's going to be a higher load between the foot and the core, still nothing you know, high ballistic dynamic aspects to it because I just need now a foundation of strength, right? So you got sensory stability, 
Layer two is integrated strength. So I have exercises that they would do and integrate over four to six weeks. And then the third layer would be more of a functional dynamic demand, right? Is that higher load? Is it more like jumping rope? Is it kind of like a box jump? bounding, what is it that's going to be a little bit more ballistic to whatever your demand is? And then I do that. So, and that would be another four to six weeks. So you're taking someone from three to four months, really through this course. However, you cannot proceed to phase two and to successfully complete phase one. (laughs) So it might take people longer if they're not consistent with each of these different phases. And anyone who tries to fast track it And their patients of mine, they will come back and say, oh, I should have listened to you. (laughs) You told me 20%, this number of repetitions, I only want you contracting your foot at 20%, or I only want you contracting your pelvic floor at 20%. And then they're like, no, because, you know, type A personality, more, more, more. And then they come back to me and they're flared up because they happen to have a certain injury. And they're like, I should have listened to your 20%. When all else fails, follow the instructions. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If we go back to that first phase, what are some of the challenges that people will typically face that might make them kind of question why they're doing this and might make them quit too early? I think it's just the consistency. Sometimes when something is small dose consistently and there's not this tangible change or this wow effect that people want, it's really the instant gratification of people today that they just want, I do this, I get this right away. So it's a long game. And I will actually tell my patients those exact words. I'm like, this is a long game. You have to be in it for the overall bigger goal of what you're trying to achieve. And honestly, if you pull back in your life and you say, I'm going to take the next three to four months, three to four months in the big picture of your life is not long, right? I know Each day at a time, you're probably like, this is ridiculous. I just want to go running again or whatnot. But I need people to be calm and committed and consistent. That is the biggest takeaway is consistency. Consistent, consistent, consistent. Much better than two times a week for 30 minutes, you do a reset or a mobilization. And then all the other days you do nothing. Yeah. It it doesn't work that way. Yeah. I love the consistency piece as far as building habits. Um, I've talked about this with a former guest, like, yeah, you can come and buy personal training sessions with me five days a week through January, but you're going to get a lot more sessions if you buy twice a week through the entire year and way less likely to quit when it really sucks. So I love that (laughs) consistency part as far as building in the habits. It, It really seems like, like people are not, willing to go through a process of getting that result. Like you said, we want the gratification. We want to be on stage and have the pictures taken and blah, 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 but we're not willing to sacrifice for that yet. That's where all the value in life comes from. If somebody were to be thinking about when to put this into their life, say it is somebody who's doing running or lots of events, I'm, I'm guessing the best time to think about starting this process would be in an off season. Either an off season or coming off of an injury. So I always find that with some of the professional athletes that I work with, you know, to that level or caliber of an athlete, they're not going to rock the boat at all. Let's say as far as like implementing new concepts and philosophies from a movement or training perspective. However, if you get someone off an injury, they're now, okay. They have a little bit higher investment in the process because they don't want to get injured again. And they're kind of starting 
not over, but a little bit, that this is the time to build those foundational concepts. If you're not coming off of an injury, then I would say, yes, doing it uh, during an off season or when you know there is this period where you could be very consistent. Obviously, it's hard if everyone is traveling for the next three months to be consistent when you're in a different country or you're on holiday or, you know, so you really want to make sure that there's that appropriateness of you being able to commit and stay to the program. Gotcha. And it seems like the first phase, the priority is sensory. You really are trying to get your feet to feel again. Um, are there, are there, you know, besides your products, are there other surfaces you want people to be standing on? Should they be exploring all kinds of different surfaces? You can absolutely do surface exploration. Let's say where you want to use different durometers or hardness of surfaces. And this is something that I think is important for the listeners to understand is that harder surfaces stimulate the nervous system more. So I would want you on, you know, a hardwood floor, just walk around your home barefoot. There's different pebble paths that you could walk across. Do you want to walk across the gravel and the grass? You're doing play within the natural environment. You could absolutely do that as well. I love more natural surfaces than artificial surfaces. And then, you know, you mentioned the Noboso mats, of course, walking across the Noboso mat, but it could be using vibration platforms. Um, and then can you incorporate standing on one leg on these different surfaces? You're just trying to find that functionality. I know beams are really popular right now. So I just want to kind of throw that out there. As far as a beam, you could do beam work if you want. It does get you tuned in to focus on the foot and the way the foot is engaging with the beam. So if that's something that weaves into your lifestyle well, then that is great as, as another idea. Yeah, that's something that really surprised me until I gave it a lot more thought. I would have thought the softer surfaces would have been best to get started, but the softer surfaces allow you to continue dysfunctional walking patterns. Is that right? 100%, yes. So softer surfaces damp and create that sensory disconnect. And you can understand this by looking at Research that looks at gymnasts and landing techniques and the accuracy of their placement through sensory stimulation on a hard mat versus a soft mat. And it's really interesting to see the accuracy of foot placement and body control on these hard mats versus soft mats where you'd be like, oh, I need to like cushion because I'm landing from something high to protect me. But actually the accuracy of the movement and the foot engagement is much higher on that harder surface. So I'm very much into advocating harder surfaces, uh, bring in more sensory stimulation, connect to maybe a variety of a range of harder surfaces, but like wrestling mats, yoga mats, you know, anything too soft and damped, even like living room carpet, all that does is create a sensory disconnect. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love the gymnast thing. I can totally visualize that flipping through the air and, and having to slow yourself down. You need to make your body soft rather than making that landing soft to be able to control the movement. How would somebody know that they are basically about to graduate through phase one? Um, so really it's time as well. So even if you think after two weeks, you're awesome and you're stable and you're ready to go, I will still want you to do at least four weeks. I believe it takes about 30 days to create a habit. And that's really part of what I'm implementing here as well as we're trying to create habits and change behavior change. So if you do the four weeks and you're good, you're consistent, maybe there was some foot fatigue at the end of the day, and now you feel like you have more endurance in your feet. So you might not have any pain, but it could just be 
postural endurance, foot posture endurance, and you notice that. Um, some people will actually say that they sleep better <laughs> from it as well. Or if you have other tightness in the body that you do not correlate to the feet, let's say lower back, which we know correlates to the feet, but let's say the listener does not know that you could correlate low back tightness to the bottom of the foot. And you're doing this consistent foot release every single day, you might actually feel less strain and fatigue in the lower back as well. So it translates up in the body. It's not going to be just tangible changes in the foot itself. I see. So we'll notice certain things, certain signs and symptoms will be getting better, but the priority really is putting in the time to establish those habits before we move on. 100%. Yeah. Well explained. Okay. So let's deep dive into phase two. Now we're trying to um, involve a little bit of movement. Is this where the short foot um, exercises start to come in? Yes. So this is where I will teach short foot, which is a foot activation or foot strengthening technique. And it is integrated with pelvic floor. So part of the beginning of phase two is if you do not know how to engage your pelvic floor, we have to cover that. You have to understand how to engage your pelvic floor in a controlled lift. So I consider it, you're saying hello to the pelvic floor. You're not doing like a massive one rep max with your pelvic floor. We don't want that. It is you just kind of lifting and releasing. You want to find the pelvic floor rhythm with your diaphragm or your breath. So that's an important concept that I need in phase two while the awareness of lifting, spreading, foot trop, tripoding the foot, getting the digits connected. So we got that. Once you can get them in isolation, then we need to integrate them. And when we integrate them, I often introduce them into single leg-based exercises. So a single leg stance with control and connection between the digits, the pelvic floor, and then all the way to the tongue, to the palate. Yeah, no, that's great. I We will definitely link this video in the show notes. Um, it's really helpful, and I encourage the listeners to, as long as you're not driving, obviously, pull up the video and watch th these exercises because it's it's different to hear you describe them, although I'd love to hear you describe that exercise and how you build on that and how you stack those things. Um, but, but you in the video, it's about 12 minutes long, taking us through those things in sequence, I found to be very, very helpful. Again, it, way better to watch, but if you don't mind, could you take us through those stages? and what people can expect yes. as they go through them. Yes, absolutely. So what short foot is in a, the simplest way of describing it is you're pushing the digits into the ground. So the tips of the toes are connecting down into the ground. The way that I initially teach this now, which has kind of evolved a little bit um, through the years, is I will have people stand with their feet shoulder width apart, find their foot tripod. So under the first, fifth, the heel, Lift the toes, spread them out nice and wide, place them back down on the floor. And then you're going to stand nice and tall as if you're stiff as a board. You're going to stay stiff as a board and just gently rock your body forward. As you start to rock your body forward, your digits are going to reflexively connect into the ground. You're not doing it. It is a reflex within your gravitational posture system so that you don't fall over. And then you go back into the vertical position. So you just rock forward. Your digits are going to contract. And then you come back forward. Do that five to eight times. And I do that as a way for people to feel what the action of the digits are. Meaning that when I tell you to push your toes into the ground, we're not doing a towel crunch. There's no curling or rolling in of the digits. You are trying to stay long, straight, and flat with the toes because that's 
functional. You want your digits long, straight, and flat into the ground. So that forward lean, I will start to introduce. Once you have that, then we want to start to do that without leaning, and you'll push the digits into the ground. And at the same time, you want to lift the pelvic floor. If you're not aware of how to do that, then I would have you take a step back and I would have you first find the anterior pelvic floor, find the posterior pelvic floor, and then relax both. So you would be doing a Kegel. Some people call the posture a Poogle. <laughs> so a Kegel <laughs> and a Poogle, but you are lifting the anterior or stopping your pee, and then you're lifting the posterior or stopping your poo and then releasing both. So you're just trying to lift, lift, relax, lift, lift, relax. And then you do both at the same time. And then once you have that rhythm of a lift, a relax, a lift, a relax, I want you then every time you lift to push your toes down into the floor in the same way that it felt when we did the forward lean. So you would lift toes down, release, lift toes down, release. And then once you have that, you want to start to exhale every time you do it. So you would shh, shh, and you're trying to essentially stack the stability from the tips of the toes to the pelvic floor, to the diaphragm. And then of course it can go further up to the palate. Yeah. So interesting. And it, it was, it was great to watch it. That was a great description, by the way. I think most people would be able to understand that from that description, but it, it, it is interesting also to tie that in to breath work. Is there anything specific that you recommend for uh, improving breath work alongside this? Uh, yeah, so I don't claim to be a breathing master in any way, but because the diaphragm is so connected to foot stabilization, I have to teach it a lot or reference it a lot. So if you are looking at different Wim Hof techniques or different yogi type breathing, totally fine. I take more of an approach from a cranial sacral therapist's approach that I like nasal breathing. I want both the inhale and the exhale through the nose, if possible, to try to control the cranial nerves and some of the fight or flight autonomic nervous system responses. Um, so I'd like to keep it nasal. And then I put a lot of my emphasis on the exhalation versus the inhalation, because if you do what's called end range expiration, so let's say I inhale for like five seconds through my nose. And I'm inhaling, my belly is expanding because I'm doing sub-diaphragmatic breathing. If I exhale and I really extend my exhale to eight, nine, 10 seconds, it's called end range expiration, your pelvic floor and your deep core stabilizers have no choice but to engage. So to me, it is a very good pelvic floor activation for the client or the individual who is like, what? You want me to what with my pelvic floor? Like they're so disconnected from that muscle. I just tell them how to breathe. And then as they're exhaling for eight, nine, 10 seconds, I'm saying, push your toes into the floor on eight, nine, 10. And essentially the same response is happening in the body. Yeah. That's a really good explanation for all the breathing experts that we've talked to, you know, James Nestor, uh, Patrick McEwen, all these guys have told us like, yeah, there's specific protocols that you can use, but it's really more about doing something, anything, especially with nasal, <laughs> nasal breathing than it is to follow like some exact protocol or something like that. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What are some misconceptions about core and core exercise? Since we're kind of talking about that area, where do people go wrong when they're trying to decide what exercises they want to do for their core? Uh, what I 
I see kind of pulling in from the fitness side and then ultimately what I see from a movement dysfunction side is this loss of coordination or the sequencing of the stabilizers. And what that means is that the deep core pelvic floor, again, I'm very obsessed with the pelvic floor, but the pelvic floor has to fire first. And once that engages, then you can start to build off of that, your transverse abdominals, your multifidi, your obliques, your rectus abdominis, all the other muscles that are part of our core that we think about it. But oftentimes, and you see this very common in athletics, is people become very good, athletes become very good at using these large global muscles, like their hip flexors, their psoas, uh, the rectus abdominis, the obliques. But what's happening is it's not being built off of this deep, stable base. And that's where you can start to see adductor strains, um, sports hernia. We mentioned that briefly in the beginning before we were recording. So a athletic pubelgia or sports hernia, which is a tear of the rectus abdominis muscle. This is very common athletes because of a improper stabilization sequencing of the pelvic floor. A lot of coccidinia I will actually see, and people don't realize that that's connected to all of this as well. And then a lot of hip labral stress or a loss of deep hip centration. So the femur isn't sitting in the joint well because of the timing of how all these different muscles contract and coordinate with each other. I see. Really can't fire a cannon out of a canoe if we don't have that stable base to hold from. All those sheer forces of heavy movement or dynamic movement can be just too much. Exactly. And a lot of the exercises that foster this, not not to knock in any way on CrossFit, but you know, Maybe I will. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) A lot of the higher intensity exercises, let's say as an example of hanging on a bar and bringing your legs in like an L sit. Right. And for the listeners who can see the video um, is there's a lot of kind of pushing forward. So people don't realize like, okay, I'm going to find any muscle that's going to get my legs up. So I'm totally using all the wrong muscles in my shoulder joint to try to get my legs up. And I'm really just cheating the entire system. And not only am I going to get an injury in, you know, my shoulders from that technique, but the deep core or that foundational soft tissue structure is just not connected. It's not part of this party in any way. So kipping, um, high momentum movements, being at extreme fatigue and just trying to really push through it with momentum versus technique is where I find a lot of the breakdown happens. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell us a little bit about something you talked earlier um, about, which is single leg exercises versus bilateral exercise or legs, exercises that use both legs at the same time. Why do you favor single leg exercises and what are some of your favorites? I love single leg exercises. Uh, one, they're good for your butt. <laughs> so they have higher glute activation. So if anyone is just wanting to get, you know, the best glutes, you really should be doing the exercises that research does EMG studies and shows, oh, a single leg squat or a single leg deadlift or a rotational lunge, any of these single leg based exercises looking at EMGs have the highest glute activation. I'm going to choose those exercises, right? But they're also extremely functional, meaning if you just want to walk the right way, 
there is a period of time during the gait cycle that you are on one leg and you have to be able to stabilize from the ground up in that single leg position and transfer energy. So that's really the biggest part is you need to be stable on a single leg, but you have to have the stability that you can transfer force on that single leg. And that's a different demand on the human body as well. That translates to running. Almost every athletic position requires some component of single leg stability and force transfer on that single leg. Um, So it's really what I find one of the best ways to train the foot and the core. So foot to core sequencing, foot to pelvic floor to glute stabilization is really most effectively done on a single leg position. Yeah. And you're also using smaller muscle groups that wouldn't normally be activated in bilateral exercise also. Is that correct? Yes. And people like to have dominance. Uh, there are many studies showing, uh, subconscious shifts to dominant legs. And we don't realize that, that we're shifting to one side versus the other. So it's a really good way to balance asymmetries. So from a injury prevention, athletic, physical therapy, you want to avoid dominance or too, uh, too asymmetrical of a dominance. We all have a slight dominance, but too asymmetrical of a dominance can lead to that injury risk. Uh, and then a lot of the patients that I'm seeing who are coming off of unilateral injuries I need to make sure that they're not intelligently or subconsciously favoring one side more than the other. Yeah. Protecting it or something after an injury. Yeah. That makes sense. So if we move now from phase two to phase three, we're adding a lot more dynamic movements. What does that look like for somebody? Uh, So it depends on the sport that you're trying to do. Let's say it is, um, let's say going on a hike because this is a, a patient that I've seen recently. So it's more, Phase two was integrated strength. Phase three for someone wanting to go on long hikes or to um, hike the El Camino in Spain or something like that. So we have different goals. I would then be looking at the strength endurance. So if it's endurance, obviously I'm doing higher load, higher repetition. I need to load the foot. So I would rather versus loading by holding something because most of the exercises are going to be single leg. So I don't want you asymmetrically loading your system. I would want you to have like a rucksack on or something like a, a weighted vest so that you are loading your system. I think that that's an aspect of especially foot and foot tendon strength is that you need to load the system and we're not loading the system well enough through poundage on the back or something like that, that it's just not being challenged. Um, Then I want different levels of ballistics. So a deceleration component, uh, whether it's stepping off of a step. So if you're on a box and you're stepping down, I would need you to control ball heel. So this kind of ball heel movement. And as you come down ball heel, I need you to and like contract your foot, right? So I'm going to weave in their very integrated or specifically placed isometric foot contractions or foot to core contractions to then drive or further drive home that stabilization pattern. Um, So again, it it depends on what it is, right? Um, Runner, obviously more ballistic. If you can't jump rope for a certain period, I really don't think you should be clear to run. Um, If you don't have the skill or the coordination of jumping rope, I'll find something else for you. But you need to be able to do a certain number of single leg hops 
in order to really pass the stabilization and strength test to go running and not get injured. Yeah. So are you considering what surface the athlete is going to be performing on and also like what primary range of motion or or plane of motion, excuse me, that they'll be working in? Like, let's say a runner versus a tennis player who's doing a lot of lateral stuff versus maybe a soccer player who's in the more transverse plane. 100%. So is it going to be more natural surfaces? Is it a basketball player? I want them on the surface that they're actually going to be playing on or performing on. So a basketball player, I would want on that surface, it would be barefoot. And then really the third phase is where you would go from totally barefoot into whatever footwear they're going to then perform in, right? And since we're trying to transition them into a more minimal footwear, what does that environment look like? It still is a big difference to go from totally barefoot to minimal shoes. And I think anyone who listens, who is hardcore barefoot trainer, or you train barefoot and do your exercises barefoot to even put on a pair of Vivo barefoots footwear is very still disconnecting. And I I know I, I recently experienced that doing kettlebells and I almost entirely do stuff barefoot. The accuracy of my movement, even in vivo barefoot was so disconnected. And I was like, okay, either I need to start training. So there's transfer into these other environments, or I was like, screw it, get the shoes off. I'm just doing kettlebells. barefoot." (laughs) But we need to think about that crossover. There was actually a really interesting research study that said the most prepared or protected athlete from a foot and ankle perspective was the one that trained totally barefoot, did those same activities, minimal shoes, did the same activities in their performance footwear. So say a basketball player, right? And what you want to do is show that you have the same connection and integrated stabilization in all three environments. I don't want you to be just a badass in your bare feet. And then as soon as you go in your shoes to play basketball or pickleball or tennis, you just, you, you, you lost the connection, right? So that transfer, I think is really important and an aspect that I'd encourage the listeners to integrate as well. That's really interesting. I think that's really valuable. I think of like my transition to barefoot was really great, but I can't do that when I play ice hockey. I can't do that when I jump on my road bike or go mountain biking. Like I still have to use footwear of some kind. That's not going to go very well. And so having that control on both and, and training it barefoot, I think is a really important consideration. I'm just curious, what have you decided to do with your kettlebells? Do did you go back to doing them barefoot or are you going to try to train them in the shoes? No. So I started doing it in the shoes. Uh, I put the Naboso insoles in my shoes, but I definitely, I just love the digit dexterity as well. And I think that's a part of footwear that outside of the Vibram five fingers, the no shoe can do that outside of the five fingers. And to me, digit dexterity is such an important part of how we connect to the ground in our movement that I need to be able to articulate that aspect of the foot, especially when you're used to doing it. And that's how I harness my stability. So I'm going to take my advice and I am going to train in both environments. So I become a badass in both, not just barefoot. Um, But it's very tempting to be like, oh, 
just take the shoes off and be barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely understand that. At least it's another layer of protection in case you fail a lift and that kettlebell comes crashing down on your foot. You'll be glad. Oh, you have I the, know. <laughs> I'm glad you have the fever. I hate to break a toe, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow. Okay. So then maybe this is a good segue into other tools that we can use and some of the products you've come up with. And so maybe we can start by what, what led you down this path? Why didn't you just stay in the medical field without, you know, kind of developing some of these tools? What, what gaps are you seeing? Yes. So I first developed Naboso after traveling around the world and teaching other health, wellness trainers, coaches about barefoot science and how to optimize the sensory side of the human foot as it translates to movement and performance. So what I started encountering was, okay, we're getting our clients and our athletes out of their shoes. Then you want to ask yourself, what surface are you training on? Right. And I was seeing that there was really no surface innovation, a lot of footwear innovation, minimal shoes, all the technology that goes into footwear, but then no one was really questioning or challenging the surface component. So I started looking at research of surface science, different surfaces, feedback, sensory stimulation, and I got into texture and texture is a stimulus to the nerves in the bottom of the feet. So I started to play around with the idea or the concept of bringing texture to a surface to enhance the overall feedback that we would get from our feet as soon as we take our shoes off. And that's what led to Naboso. Um, for those that are seeing the video, this is one of the insoles. And you can see there's little tiny pyramids across the entire surface or the material that the products are made out of. Our mat, one of our mats is our first product that we ever launched in 2017. And it was a barefoot training surface, picture a yoga mat with these tiny little pyramids across the entire surface. And it was designed to activate the, they're called mechanoceptors in the feet and it's an SA1 Raquel disc. So it's a really specific nerve in the feet that we're stimulating. And it is the same nerve that you stimulate when your finger reads braille. So it's a two-point discrimination pattern that stimulates this nerve. And what we started hearing from our users is they were like, this is awesome, but what do I do when I put my shoes on? I want it in my shoe. So we launched insoles. Then eventually, fast forward four years later, we now have release tools. We have sensory sticks. We have flooring. We have socks. We have four different insoles. So we have a whole full product line and are now doing research in the space of textured science. You could say, like, what does texture do to the feet and the nervous system? And then we apply those concepts to just overall wellness, fitness, also to medical, specifically neuro rehab. And there's a lot of research in post-stroke, neuropathy, Parkinson's, MS that we're doing, wow. and then to the performance and the professional athlete side. Wow. That's awesome. I look at that sole and that makes my foot just so happy. You mentioned like the pebbles earlier. There was a time in my life where I couldn't walk on those types of things or, or, you know, use an insole like that without that being very uncomfortable. And now I'm just like, yes, foot massage. This is amazing. It's so great to actually feel some of those surfaces. Do you get the same feedback? Yeah. So people don't know what to expect because texture is, it's its own thing right? One of our team members is like, it's like asking a fish how it feels in water. Like it doesn't know any difference, right? Like it's hard to explain certain things where texture is definitely experiential, 
but from the majority now having been in business for over four years and selling thousands of these different products and getting feedback is the great majority of people want more sensory information. So they would be sensory seeking or they have this positive association with more sensory information. There's a small percent of people that are sensory defensive and they get, it it just kind of amps them up a little bit or they have this negative association. And it's just the individuality of some people like certain textures of food, like sushi and other people are like, no way I can't have that texture, right? So it's individual. What we find is that texture has this natural calming effect to it. And actually research will call texture and touch as the body's natural tranquilizer. So it's calming to our nervous system, calming in the sense that it grounds you. It means that you can say, I feel my feet. I feel the ground. If I can feel the ground in my body in space, I feel quote unquote safe. Safe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so I'm here. And the more that we can connect to that physical body, the more you can navigate that physical body, right? As an athlete, if I know where I am, I'm going to move that body better, more accurately. But similarly, it might focus me cognitively. So we've actually seen a lot of cognitive work performance aspect with texture, which is really interesting because people are kind of zoned in, they're ready. And then emotionally as well, that it can calm some emotions. We work with a lot of children with autism and ADHD and the texture helps them to feel safe so they are not excited within that emotional state. Brings them back down. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the release tools? Yes. So we have a neural ball, little bag of tricks here. Uh, We have a neural ball that goes from a ball so it's it's open so I can show you the two domes, but it's about the size of a lacrosse ball. And then you split it open and you get two domes. And why we designed it this way, this is actually an idea I had like 10 years ago, is to have a ball that could split to better release the feet. So this is to give you a bilateral or a both feet release at the same time. The height of the dome is the average height of the arch. And what, why I designed it that way is I didn't want you to be on something that is too big that then your pelvis and ergonomically, it's not friendly to a release. So we have a ergonomically friendly dome. And then we teach a five point foot release that we want you to do every morning, every evening before you run or work out that you can integrate it. But the bonus of having the texture on the domes is that you are getting this added benefit. So it's not just myofascial release with a massage tool. It is neurostimulating. The little pyramids are stimulating the small vessels or the small nerves in the bottom of the foot. And then it's also microvascular stimulating. So we are actually doing some research and we've heard this from our users that using our products, they actually get improved circulation to their feet. Their feet aren't cold anymore. So this circulatory benefit is really, really powerful. And it's a part of recovery that Nobosa as a company is really focusing on is if you don't have good circulation in your feet, 
it doesn't matter how much you massage them or you rest them or you use art supports. You need to make sure that you have good circulation so that you can get the garbage out and the good stuff in. Yeah, that's got to help with recovery so much. I love that. What a cool product. It's a great idea and very well designed. I do want to mention one other product that we absolutely both love and I have on right now. It's my toe spacers. (laughs) Yes. What are toe spacers? Why do they look uh, a little bit dorky? And uh, why are they so important? Oh my gosh. I am obsessed with toe spacers. And I'm going to send you some of our new ones, Casey. So you have these. These are new ones. These are actually launching in just a few days. And we... We started selling toe spacers because I was recommending them to everyone. Like I am obsessed with these silly things. They're amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Not just the literal, like, okay, I have a bunion, hammer toes, an aroma. I'm in narrow shoes. That's the literal benefit or the easiest association of toe spacers for feet and recovery. Makes sense. However, there's so many other benefits to the toe spacers from stretching your plantar fascia. It supports the front of the foot. That's called the lever. It's a balance tool. So it helps your digits stay long, straight and flat on the ground, which is for balance. Part of how we release energy is you roll forward into this rigid lever and a rigid lever needs to be wide. So you need to splay or spread the metatarsals and the digits so that you have this wide surface area to catapult off of. So it is so much more than just, I have hammer toes and bunions and therefore I'm using them. Yeah, gotcha. And I've got two different types that I use. One, um, I are, they came with my shoes, and I, you could wear them with sandals and probably put them in a pair of shoes. The other ones I have, you you really could. They're just too big. Um, and it looks like the product that you have could do both. Is that correct? Yes. So we have many users who will wear these in their shoes. We often tell people to start end of the day, wear them for thirty minutes. Right. See how they feel. It's something. In between your toes, you got to get used to that, that sensation, what it feels like. It is stretching tissue. So just allow that adaptation. And then you can slowly increase the time. If you want to wear them in your shoes, obviously you have a wide enough toe box that can accommodate it, but for sure you can wear these in your shoes when working out, when going for a run, when doing yoga, when doing your Pilates, so many ways on how you can use it. And to me, if they benefit function and balance and the digits in the forefoot, then you would want to wear them in your shoes. So I need them to be able to fit into your shoes as well. No, I absolutely love that. It's a highlight of the day to go outside and be barefoot and watch the sunrise. It's also a highlight of the day to put my blue blockers on, sit down, kick my feet up and throw my toe spacers on. It's just like, I don't know, that stretch just feels absolutely amazing. (laughs) I'm totally hooked. Love it. Totally hooked. Well, awesome. This has been such an amazing conversation. Where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah. So my uh, podiatry practice, if you want to learn more about how I see patients as a functional podiatrist, is dremilysplickle.com. So that's my full name would be the website. I am on Instagram, dremilydpm. I put lots of content and education on Instagram. And then for Naboso and all of the different products, that is naboso.com, N-A-B-O-S-O.com. And then we are on Instagram, naboso underscore technology. And we do have a code for your listeners. 
Uh, you can use code boundless and that will get you 20% off. That's amazing. Thank you so very much for doing that. That's fantastic. Uh, I would encourage our listeners really to go and, and subscribe to you, especially like on Instagram. There's so much educational content you put out that's really, really helpful. It, it's really great to learn about this stuff and it's very empowering. And so we so much appreciate you and all of your work and for giving us that, that great uh, code. We'll make sure we link that in the notes. I will be taking advantage of that for sure. And thank you so very much. Uh, we really appreciate you and your work and everything you've done. Thank you for taking time to be on our show. We really appreciate you. Of course. Thank you so much. I hope people enjoyed. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. Thank you again so very much for continuing to listen to and support Boundless Body Radio. This little passion project that we started almost two years ago just continues to steadily grow. We are reaching more people than ever, and we keep receiving so many inspirational and amazing messages from you. We see it in all the reviews that we get, and we really appreciate that. So thank you so very much for that. We love understanding which guests you really connect with and which content you really appreciate the most. We wanted to take a second also to give a huge shout out to our amazing guests Yes, we love the people that we've been able to host and all their amazing content in these awesome conversations. And we have to say in the pipeline, we already have lots of great episodes that will be coming to you soon and lots of great guests. Some will be new to the show and others will be familiar to you if you have been listening to our show for a while. So look forward to that on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. We are still running a lot of the same offers that we have been running for the last few months. These offers are complimentary and we've really had a great time connecting with people all over the world who are taking advantage of these. So if you go to our website, which again is myboundlessbody.com, on the main page, you'll find a button that says book now. You can book either a functional movement screen, which is a movement screening tool used to evaluate movement patterns to optimize mobility, fitness, and injury prevention, we do that virtually through Zoom with a bit of creativity. You can book that session, which takes about 30 minutes and is complimentary. You can also see another booking for a 30-minute consultation with us where we can really chat about anything that you like. We can talk about fitness or nutrition or help you come up with a plan for you to be able to reach your goals. As always, it really helps us grow if you leave us a rating and review. So please be sure to go to Apple, leave us a five-star rating and review. And thank you, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.